0: I'm back after a long silence. I apologize for the skipped week. Um, here's the deal I'm coming to you from Northern California. I know those of you who follow this podcast with any sort of uh, precision know that I was in Thailand last time I said hello and intending to be in Thailand for some time, but a close friend of ours was involved in a pretty horrific accident and um i got a call from her her mother and uh she was in the hospital uh she was in surgery and um it was pretty clear that um at best she was going to be Um, Recovering for quite a while, both uh, physically and psychologically, Um, just out of respect for her privacy. uh, I'm not going to say anything else about the nature of the accident, but it was pretty bad and um, complicated. So um, Anya and I jumped on a plane and flew back to la and got the van from oliver who had uh, installed a whole new house electrical system in my absence which is beautiful got a couple lithium iron batteries now and uh, another solar panel and uh, so that's all decked out and uh, we drove up to northern california to be with our friend and uh take some pressure off her parents and uh, basically just, you know, it's such a luxury to have uh, the kind of life where you can sort of move around and, you know, write a book occasionally and have uh, a bunch of very generous, fucking amazing people listen to a podcast and send you 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 bucks a month and, um, I recognize how incredibly privileged that is, and um, you know how amazing it is to to be able to say, "Hey, let's! I'm going to go to Thailand and you know work on a book there and do some podcasting down there." And but sometimes things happen and someone needs you, and when you're able to drop everything and come and help out you do right it's like it's that's part of the deal <laughs> it's like if you've got the freedom you know when my dad got sick um for example and i was living in spain it was like well i don't need to be living in spain i love to live in spain but my dad's not doing so well so i'm going to go live in portland or la or vancouver and different places i lived depending how serious his condition was at the time, whether I needed to be within a couple of hours or within a couple of minutes. Um But that's a, an incredible luxury to have. And um I thank you for that. Those of you who support the podcast financially um, made it possible for me to just say, fuck, get a ticket, let's go. And so that's what we did and that's where we are. And so I'm going to be coming to you from, um, from North America for a little while. So that is the update. Um, this episode is amazing. I've been really looking forward to releasing this. Um, this guy is named Richard Bandy. He is someone that I got to spend some time with in uh, Maui on our way to to Asia, and he is... A very unusual person uh, he's had a very unusual experience basically in a nutshell the experience is that he had major surgery and uh, in the course of the surgery um, a surgeon nicked uh, an aorta I think or, or an artery and he died and his brain had no oxygen And the surgeons realized what had happened and opened him up and found the problem and fixed it and brought him back to life. Amazing. Um, So that would be enough in and of itself, someone who had that kind of experience. But it goes beyond that because he came back, he regained consciousness, and everything that had happened to him in his life previous to that moment was lost. Forever. He had no memory of his wife, of his children, of his siblings, of his childhood, of whether he liked spicy food or not, of whether he drank wine or beer or coffee or nothing or just total blank slate. And it never did come back. So, he is in a sense reincarnated. Not sure if I put the the accent on the right syllable there. Reincarnated, reincarnated, reincarnated. In any case, he's a different person. He looks the same. He's occupying the same body, Um, but his personality, as you'll hear, has changed. And his attitude toward life has certainly changed. And, you know, I was talking to to my friend this morning who was in this accident. And she said something about, she said, the term near-death experience is, is a strange one. Um, because if you've truly had a near-death experience... You've died. There is no near death. If you get that close, if it's that significant, then the person you were dies, and the person you are now is different. There's a before and after. As there will be in her case, as there already is, um, not to sort of make this about me but uh, those of you have heard the story I've told a few times about being stung by the scorpion in Guatemala in 1989 you know that I thought that was a near death experience as it turns out I wasn't actually dying but I thought I was and I certainly have envisioned my life as a before and after like that was a section break you know that was uh, a very significant pivot point in my life and I think anyone who has an experience like that tends to see their lives like there's a death and a rebirth and uh, that's an important experience to have and that's an important way to frame it because it allows you to to configure your life differently, to configure your life with intention, to take what you learned in the previous life and not have to learn it again. I think one of the things that impoverishes modern life is the absence of real ritual that we have around maturation. I've probably said this on, on the podcast before, but there's a there's a a vacuum where coming-of-age rituals should be in Western society. You know, we have things like bar mitzvah or if you're Jewish or, um, you know, you graduate high school or graduate from college or you join the military or, you know, there are these, you know, the drinking age is probably the biggest one. Uh, in the United States where, you know, you're 18 or 21 or whatever the age is now and like, oh, I can order a beer. I can go into the the bar with the adults. Uh, it's such an empty, pathetic image of adulthood. Um, most Of the hunter-gatherer societies that I'm aware of, or even more sort of tribal um, Native American societies like the Lakota, the Cheyenne, who are not hunter-gatherers strictly speaking, but um, these these non-industrialized, non-agricultural societies have distinct rituals that distinguish between the life of the child and the life of the man or woman. When you become a mature being at that threshold, there are specific rituals often involving uh, fasting or extended uh, time in solitude um, or uh, psychedelics in some cases and visions and interpretations of the visions by the holy people of the group. And then typically you are given a new name and that name means you have a new identity. You're a new person. You're different. The life of the child is distinct from the life of the adult. And I think we suffer from that in our society. We suffer from the absence of that, that the life of the child merges into the life of the adult. There's not a clear distinction between the two. When does that happen? When do you grow up? Is it when you graduate from high school? Is it when you get your first job? Is it when you move out of your parents' house? Is it when your parents stop paying your bills? Is it when you get married? Is it when you have children? Where where is it? When does it happen? When do you become a man or a woman? We don't know. And so we have all these physiological adults walking around acting like children. Because they never got the memo. Like that shit's over. You're a grown man. Why are you wearing a Kobe Bryant t-shirt? Your name's not Kobe. Why are you walking around with another man's name on your back? You know, why are you, you're a woman. Why are you dressing like a little girl? Why do you, why do you use that weird ass little girl voice? Why? I mean, there are all these things we do that are age inappropriate. And I think one of the reasons is that there's never this clear, there's never a day where you say, okay, that's over. My name now is different. I'm on a new path. I remember reading somewhere that Geronimo, whose name wasn't Geronimo, that's what the Mexicans called him, Geronimo, um, but I don't remember what his name was in his native language, but I remember that his childhood name translated to fat boy. So when he was a kid, he was fat boy. And then when he was a man, he became one of the greatest leaders and warriors the world has ever seen. Certainly not fat boy anymore. Clear distinction. So Richard Bandy had a very clear distinction between his previous life and the life he's living now. His wife's name is Sonia Lea. She was on this podcast way back when, episode 133. Um, we talked about this experience from her perspective. Uh, she wrote a book about it called Wondering Who You Are, which is available on Amazon. And uh, you can check out more about her and her writing at uh, com. She's got some essays and uh, uh, writing events and things like that. She's great. And they're still together, by the way. Imagine that. How do you do that? Like, how do you negotiate? Your husband, they'd been married 23 years, I believe. Um, and suddenly he came out of surgery. Of course, she she's thrilled. He lived. He survived. And he looks at her and says, who are you? How do you deal with that? How do you teach him to be? And what do you do? Do you, teach, do you teach him to be who he was? Do you teach him to be a better version of who he was? New and improved Richard? Uh, or do you teach him to be someone totally different? Do you teach him to be the man you've always wanted? It's very confusing, obviously, very sort of existential, what the hell do I do with this kind of situation? Anyway, that's this conversation. It's it's a great honor and privilege to know Richard and to be able to introduce him to you, um, as you can imagine, this conversation gets pretty existential and philosophical, and, uh, but Richard keeps bringing it back to some very sort of simple, um, basic truths, which I appreciate. There's a great deal of wisdom to be found in having died and living to tell about it. All right, I am going to end with that uh I promise I'll be back here more frequently than I have been in the last couple of weeks. I've got some uh some ground to cover. Um hey, if you enjoy the Rick Beato series on YouTube, what makes this song great? He just released one about Stevie Wonder's Superstition, <clears throat> one of the great songs in the history of the world and uh his unpacking of it is fantastic uh I, I really encourage you to check that out rick Beato's fantastic one of these days i'm going to get him on the podcast we've talked about it we've agreed he's he's agreed to do it and i will fly to atlanta to meet him and hang out and do a podcast with him because he's so fucking great and um yeah. Anyway, so check out Superstition uh, Rick Beato What Makes This Song Great on YouTube. And that's it. Thank you for your support of the podcast however you do it. If you can afford it financially, that is fantastic. There are there's a button on my webpage uh that you go to the podcast tab and you'll see subscribe. You can subscribe as a monthly Supporter of the podcast uh, for two, five, ten, twenty, whatever you can afford, whatever feels right to you. Um, You can also do a one time donation. There's a PayPal button there. Uh, If you can't afford the financial support, that's fine. Uh, I appreciate your reviews on iTunes or on your podcast app or whatever is easiest for you to do. It's cool to help spread the word and. Let potential guests know that this is a legit, serious kind of endeavor I got going here, and it's worth their time to sit down and share their story with me and you. All right. Thank you, everybody. I hope things are going well for you out there, and I will get back to you soon. I am going to play you out with a song I've played on the podcast before, but I think it's been a few years. It's one of my favorites. And it's a song very much thematically related to what we're talking about here. It's a song about death and life after death. Uh, The song is sung essentially by a person who has died and he is or she is looking back at um, the world as a, a reincarnation of a sort. The song is called Green Grass. It's written by Tom Waits. But this version, uh, cover version, is by a Brazilian singer named Sibel, and the name of her record is The Shine of Dried Electric Leaves. And at the end, uh, rather than playing you out with my mom talking about the t-shirts you can buy and things in the garage and Carsey Blanton singing You're Gonna Die One Day, which is also appropriate, um, I thought I would change it up a little bit and play another song that I think is about death but I think it's about looking at death and learning that you don't need to fear it and that you're ready to move into the mystic. That's the name of the song Into the Mystic and it's by Van Morrison I'm sure you've heard it but maybe you'll hear it a little bit differently after having listened to this conversation with Richard Bandy right, thank you people Love you all, and I hope life's treating you fairly. Catch you soon.
1: Heart used to be on the earth above me. Lay down in the green grass. Remember when you loved me. Come closer, don't be shy. Stand beneath the rainy sky. The moon is over the rise Think of me as a train goes by Clad the tassels and brambles Whispered didn't he ramble Now there's a bubble of me And it's flow shade of me Things aren't all made of me The weather vain will shade smells like rain today God took the stars and he tossed them Can't tell the birds from the blossoms he never be free of Take a tree from me, don't say goodbye to me, describe the sky to me, and if the sky falls, mark
0: gentlemen, I am here with Richard Bandy on a very windy day in Maui. I I don't know whether you say in Maui or on Maui. I, I, Either, I think it is Either. probably okay. So yeah. we're in and on Maui and it's the coconut palms are blowing and it's a crazy day. Um, and uh, thank you for agreeing to do this. It's this, my pleasure. This is a very kind of interesting uh and very personal story um people who uh want to sort of do this in chronological order could go back and listen to my conversation with your wife sonia that i think that was four years ago or five years ago something like. at least three or four years ago yeah yeah. in portland right Mm -hmm. yeah um and uh yeah she we talked about a book she wrote Uh, called Wondering Who You Are. Wondering Who You Are. Yeah, and you are the person she was
2: wondering. Or is is the title that you were wondering who she was? Uh, I think it could be seen either way, but I think it was more her perspective of wondering who I was because I was the one that had gone through the transformation, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the transformation. Be... Uh, Before people get confused here, uh,
2: do you want to describe what happened? Sure. Um, In 2000, I was diagnosed with a very rare cancer called pseudomyxoma peritonei, which is a mucus-producing tumor that develops in your abdomen, and most people die from it unless you go through this radical surgery. Hmm. Well, I had surgery in 2000 in Seattle. They took a gallon of mucus out of me, um, and I was back at work two weeks later. And then three years later, it came back. And the oncologist I was seeing in Seattle told me to continue having the same, similar sort of surgeries every few years, just to mm. get rid of the mucus that was building up. And eventually it would scar and to the point where I couldn't have surgery anymore and I'd probably die from it. Oh. Well, I started doing research and looking around as somebody might have a more curative approach. And I ended up at this uh, hospital, um, where they did this 12-hour surgery on me, it's called the mother of all surgeries, and they cut me from xiphoid to pubis, took all my organs out, scraped all the mucus off by hand, and then put the organs back in, minus my spleen, minus my gallbladder, minus a fair amount of my omentum, which is this covering around the abdomen, and uh, then put me on heated chemotherapy, 12 hours on, 12 hours off for five days, and I haven't had any cancer since. Hmm. The unfortunate part is they also nicked an artery in my stomach, and I bled out and basically died on the table. I don't remember any of this, but I've been told that I died on the table. Yeah. And um, when I came back, I had virtually no memory of my life. Um, I had an anoxic insult to my brain, and uh, I ended up um, basically being like a child again. How long was your brain without oxygen? Uh, I have no idea exactly. I would say... You know, it wasn't it wasn't completely anoxic, it was hypoxic, I guess. Mm. And so, you know, four minutes of anoxia will basically kill you. Right. But I imagine it was like a half an hour of hypoxic situation where they tried to transfuse me with blood, that sort of thing. Right. And uh, when I came to, I had no memory of what I'd been through. Did you, were you able to speak? Apparently I could speak, although, I mean, people asked me the first thing that I remember And, um, generally my first memory is walking down a hallway with an IV pole with Sonia at my side. And I later found out that was two weeks into the hospital stay. And so I had obviously said some words and I have a notebook where I'd written in very scrawling kind of block printing, who's here, who's been here, who's coming. And apparently that's the only things that I was kind of really able to communicate over the first couple of weeks that I was there. Right. Yeah. And. Um I I have very little memory of the first sort of year afterward but apparently I didn't say more than 3 words at one time for the whole first year after the surgery.
0: Do you remember do you remember anything about how you were feeling at this
2: point were you stressed, afraid, confused? Well, what I've been told is that I was actually very calm um mm. considering the amount of pain and the amount of morphine that I was on at the oh, time. Right. Um I didn't, I don't know of any anxieties that I was having. I was just kind of basically trying to survive, I think. I mean, yeah. that was it for me. But apparently there were some other men and women in the same ward that I was in that were screaming in pain constantly. But, you know, apparently I did not have any of those behaviors.
0: Right, right. It's fascinating, and this was uh, two thousand. you this said? This
2: is actually two thousand and three. This oh, three. oh
0: the first yeah. one was yeah. two thousand, yeah. right? Okay, so we're talking about sixteen years ago. Um, and at what point? At what point would you say that you felt intact? That you you were who you
2: are now? Well, uh, within a, a year to eighteen months. Um, I, I was a physical therapist, and i was I was seeing a neuropsychologist within about six months after the initial surgery or the second surgery. And uh, they tried to convince me not to become a PT again, not to try to become a PT, because they felt it was too complex for my brain, Mm. and I wouldn't be able to handle the problem solving, the detection correction of what's going on with people. Mm. And I was determined, I was going to persevere. And so I would sit in my room, and that's very much what I was doing for the whole first year after the surgery, was sitting in my room, because I couldn't really handle stimulation of being outside the room. Mm. Actually, on the plane ride back, from DC coming back to uh, Seattle, uh, I actually had to stop and throw up because the amount of people that were around me, I had to actually go into the bathroom and throw up and then come in and they wheelchaired me onto uh, an exit aisle row, like in the bulkhead, just so I would have very little stimulation. Mm. Um, but I'm sorry, what was the question? The question was, when did I well, feel intact? Yeah,
0: exactly. Okay. Like um, how long was the road to feeling
2: healthy? You well. Know? It was interesting because within about a year of the surgery, uh, I was still kind of out of it. Let's say, and um, the neuropsychologist had a friend who was a physical therapist who lived very close to us. We were actually living in Laguna Beach at the time, Mm. and um, and I started. Uh, going there and just doing volunteer work. I started at four hours a week, then eight hours a week, then eventually went up to 12 hours a week. And as I put my hands on people, my hands started doing things that my brain really wasn't recognizing what it was doing. Really? And that kind of started to develop this connection, this very kinesthetic sort of approach to healing people. And um, and I would say that was the main focus, that was the main ability for me to come back. And so uh, I was really between a year and two years. Um, and then we moved to San Luis Obispo. I never told him I had a brain injury. He just became a staff therapist, started working 24 hours a week and did that for another year. And then as my hands got better, my brain started to come back a little bit. And so um, mm. after two years, I actually returned to Seattle And I'd been a a group director, I'd actually been running 20 clinics in the Seattle kind of Puget Sound area for this one company, this one physical therapy company. And I went back with the same company running one clinic and that was the most I could do because Mm. I was still having some fatigue issues. I still have some fatigue issues and some memory loss issues short term more than long term at that point. And, um, but I was able to do that and continue to work for them through 2016 when I kind of semi-retired and moved back to Canada.
0: Mm have you Have you seen a neuroscientist or neurologist who's uh, been able to explain what's happened in terms of brain like is, is has have other parts of your brain taken over?
2: Um, tasks that were formerly in a different part has it been that sort of thing Do well you know? it's interesting the neuropsychologist that i saw in southern california was really helpful in terms of it, it, the number of tests that he did um yeah. apparently my left brain which is logic linear that sort of things had sort of uh shut down a little bit and that's where some of the issues were mm. so my right brain which is more spatial um kind of came into more of a more right. task and so that was really interesting um but otherwise I went through a whole bunch of I went through functional CT scans, functional MRIs, I had a whole bunch of brain scans, that sort of things, but nothing was ever really told to me that specified exactly what had happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At what point did you start thinking about the differences between the man you were Prior and the man you are
2: after? Oh, that would at least five years, at least. I mean, for the first five years, I was basically just trying to survive. Yeah, I mean, um, it was... And even to this day, I really have very little anxiety about the past or worries about the future. I'm kind of very much in the now. I mean, yeah. that's just the way I'm living. Um, but as as Sonia started to write her book, Wondering Who You Are... Um, she was kind of focused on the differences between how I used to be and how I was of now. Course, yeah. And as I read portions of the book, it came, it was a stark realization that I changed actually quite a bit because up to that point, I hadn't really thought about the changes. Right. Yeah. Have you seen, I guess you've seen videos of yourself. Was yes. Is that weird? It was weird. I have a lot of, um, videos and super eight, uh, movies of me playing tennis as a kid, um, Christmases under the tree, that sort of things. And, It's like watching a movie, but not really acknowledging that it's me, that sort of idea. Um, Because it just, I have no memory of the actual events. So, no memory of anything prior to the, the surgery? It's strange because people ask me how, what I remember now versus what I remember then. Yeah. And the thing is, I do have some vignettes, little black and white, maybe five second, 10 second little vignettes. And I don't know if they're real or if they're a result of the pictures or videos or stories that I've heard from people in the past. Because mm, right. you know, my kids have stories, my college roommates have stories, my, um, my brother and sister have some stories. And so I've heard a number of stories right. and I've sort of developed these pictures. I don't know if they're real or whether yeah. I have just made them up. So that's
0: that's it's funny. I think we all do that, mm-hmm. but you're probably just more aware of it. But we all fill in the gaps and, and you know, our, our narratives take over and uh, yeah, dominate the, the facts of memory. If mm-hmm. there is such a thing. I would yeah. say
2: the one thing that's really different is that I used to have this incredible motion sickness. When I was a teenager, I mm. could not be in the back of a car for more than 10 minutes without throwing up. Oh, really? And if somebody lit up a cigarette, you just write me right off. Mm. Since the surgery, I've not had a single incidence of motion sickness. Really? Yeah, it's really bizarre. I'd be in boats... Cars, planes, and virtually no motion sickness whatsoever. That's the what one positive thing that's come yeah. out of this thing.
0: Is uh, other stuff like um, allergies or food preferences or things like that?
2: Um, maybe some food preferences. I'm much more sort of vegetable-based now as opposed mm. to the meat-based that I used to be. Um Otherwise, I would say I'm just more passive. I, I used to be a real type A, so I've been told a real type A worker. You were running
0: 20 clinics, you yeah, said? Yeah, I was running 20 clinics. Yeah. And
2: before that, I was right. in, in pharmaceutical sales, and I was a competitive tennis player, and all these sort of things that were right. really kind of driven. And since then, I really have had very, very little use for competition. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are there other are are there changes? I mean, so far, the changes you've mentioned are positive, right? Mm-hmm. No motion sickness. Yeah. You're more chill. Yeah. You're living in the moment. Mm-hmm.
2: Are there changes that, uh, that you don't feel positive about? Well, I still have memory issues. I mean, yeah. short-term and long-term memory issues. I really have no memory, certainly from before college age I remember virtually nothing I mean Mm. um, but even even from between college and the surgery, I mean, I might see some little vignettes, but not very much stuff. Yeah. And still I'll have some short-term memory issues. I mean, when I was seeing the neuropsychologist, I would have to put everything on my tablet or my phone or something like that. If I went to the shopping, if I went shopping, if it was more than three items, I had to make sure I had a list. Sure. And I mean, to this day, my memory is not as good as it used to be. Although directionally, I'm pretty good at finding directions. Mm. And what was kind of bizarre is that the, the lead-in to Superman, look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Right. That came to me like within a month. after really? Yeah. That and Hamlet's soliloquy. Um, <laughs> to be or not to, to be? To be or not to be, yeah. That is a question where there's no return in mind to suffer the slings and arrows or a rageous fortune by imposing on them. <laughs> and, I mean, or what a piece of work is man. How right. noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and movement, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and what to me, what is this quintessence of dust? That came to me within like two months of, uh, you know, that's the one thing that I kind of remembered was these sort of Soliloquies. I don't know where they were trapped hmm. in my brain, but for some reason you
0: had memorized them intentionally. I had memorized you think? them. Yes. In, did you study theater school? Or something? Well, you're... I
2: studied theater in high school, uh, and I was kind of a drama minor in college uh, okay. at McMaster, which is um, in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, yeah. Interesting. So that, that those were the first things that bubbled up. Yeah. The first Hamlet. things. That, yeah. And also,
0: they're so significant, right? Mm-hmm. To be or not to be. I mean, what—that's the question you're, you're sort of asking yourself, I imagine, as you like.
2: Yeah. And, yeah, and what a piece of work is man too. Yeah. What about like songs, lyrics to songs? Actually, it was really interesting because um, my for my 50th birthday, this just happened when I was 45, for my mm. 50th birthday, um, one of my roommates, one of my college roommates sent me a, a double CD of songs that we used to listen to in college. Right. And a lot of sort of, memory images came as a result of that and that right. was kind of amazing huh. and then my son put together a list of all the music that he remembered when we were growing up um it's called gratitude for Datitude. <laughs> and, and my my son and my daughter put it together together nice. uh and it, it's been great cuz I'll listen to music and you know I'll be kind of transported back and again I don't know if the memories are real or unreal but I definitely get a sense right. of being in the past which right. is kind of amazing and music has really done that for me
0: yeah yeah memory it- is so rhythmic I guess Mm -hmm. you know chanting and singing you can remember yeah I I had this weird job in Alaska gutting fish for like 14 hours a day and and had earplugs in and I I was amazed at the lyrics to songs that I didn't know I knew right that were just bubbling up because I was so bored you know like every verse of American Pie, you know?
2: Like, how do yeah. I know that? It's mm-hmm. so strange. For me, it was a lot of Motown stuff, a lot ah. of Temptations, Supremes, Four Tops, that I know that my mother listened to a lot of you know, when we were in high school, huh. but I didn't really remember any of the actual songs until I heard them, and my son right. had put together this playlist of stuff um, for me, and it was just, it was amazing, the stuff that I remember.
0: Yeah. So having had this experience, do you feel like, um, how do I say this, that... That memory, like that, we remember things we don't know we've remembered. That that we're full of st- information that will n- may never bubble up unless we create an opportunity or or luck or strange chance creates this.
2: I I think that's definitely the case. I think there are many things that are in our brains that we just don't access because we don't have the right triggers. Right. And I think the right trigger can access a lot of different memories. Sometimes it's a smell. Sometimes it's a sound. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it. Can can be a a view of something you know that kind of reminds us of something that we've seen in the past yeah um but I think it's all about the trigger yeah
0: do you experience deja vu
2: not not really not that I'm aware of yeah no
0: because I I mean someone in in your situation is so unusual but I I wonder if you know if like if you go to a place that you had visited previous Mm -hmm. to the surgery You wouldn't know it, right?
2: At this point, you wouldn't know that you had been there. Although when I went home, which is Collingwood, Ontario, which is 100 miles north of Toronto, um, when I went back there in 2013, I think, which was the last time I was there, um, everything looked familiar. Everything Uh, that I saw looked familiar. I uh, wouldn't, you know, and and driving around seemed familiar. And so, uh, you know, I don't know what I was remembering and what I was... I don't know what I was remembering, but but I definitely found my way around fairly comfortably. Right. Yeah.
0: Do you feel, is there is there um, like a conscious, subconscious thing where if you relax your conscious mind, you sort of just know where to go? You know what I mean? Like it's in
2: there, but if you think about it too much, you can't access I, it? I would say that's, that's actually probably correct. Um, I would say I probably need to be in the right frame of mind mm. to access some of that stuff. Yeah, I would say that's probably probably truer than not do you
0: meditate or do anything i have meditated
2: in the past i'm not kind of regular with it but um anxieties or or any anger issues that might come up meditation is kind of my first Hmm. my first sort of uh, go-to sort of idea yeah
0: yeah have you played tennis
2: I have played tennis. How did that come? You know, I'm not as good as I used to be, but that's partly an age, partly a... Sure. None I of us know, are, man. I right. <laughs> um, also have some chronic low back pain. Ever uh, since the surgery, uh, I developed yeah. this kind of stenosis in my back. Mm. And so, I, you know, I'm not as fast as I used to be, but right. I still enjoy hitting the ball. I really do. Right. As a matter of fact, I probably enjoy it as much or more than I used to. And I probably played... I live in Banff, so Banff has a fairly short window between June and September right. when you can really play tennis. And so I probably played forty or fifty times this past year, mm. and really enjoyed it. And, and you
0: remember how to serve and put a spin on the ball, and yeah, whatever. I do. I mean, a yeah. lot of
2: that's just um,
0: muscle memory. muscle memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, I wouldn't say I'm not as good, obviously, but but I can. I really enjoy the rhythm right. of, of playing, and actually skiing. Uh, I skied 36 days last year in Banff and um, really, really enjoyed it. Now, yeah. I have to stay on the kind of the greens or blues because sure. the blacks are just too challenging for me. You used to be a better skier? Used to, oh yeah. yeah. I, I skied, I did some heli skiing with Mike oh. Wigley and, oh, and sort yeah. of things and skied some double black diamond sort of runs, right. which I'm not really keen on right now. It's that competitive sure. sort of thing. I'm just in there to relax and yeah. enjoy myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I really enjoy skiing. Matter of fact, I ski by myself probably 80, 90% of the time and I'll go out with somebody else, you know, just every once in a while
0: yeah do you when you're when you're skiing or or doing anything do you feel like you're more able to just um be in the moment
2: now there's absolutely no question i am very much here and now right Uh, you know the past and future I, i have no Virtually no thoughts about them whatsoever.
0: Is that an intellectual thing? Is that like, hey, I've been through this experience. I'm not going to worry about that, or is it mm. just who you are?
2: I now? think it's who I am. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm conscious about trying to avoid any past uh, memories or uh, worry about any uh, future sort of endeavors that might be coming up. I think I'm just, I, th- I think I'm just here and now. And do you think you're a happier man than you were? I would say I'm a happier guy. Yeah, I would say I am. So this has been a blessing in in some ways. In some ways, yeah. I mean, um, obviously, I wouldn't wish it on anybody because there was a you know a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, a lot of. Uh, anxiety initially a um, of, uh, yeah a lot of difficulties for the people around you I no know. question right. I would say more so for them than even yeah. for me um, yeah. you know Sonia had to decide whether she was going to you know love or stay with this new guy because I was totally different person than I had been um, yeah. and I, that was brutal on her it was brutal on my kids as well because yeah. you know they were both out of the house at this point and when they would start talking with me generally we would talk by phone and I'm still not very good on the phone I'm much right. better person to person but on the phone it just seems so disconnected to me I can write I can text fairly well because I can choose my words but when I'm on the phone for years afterward I would say for even 10 years afterward I would sit on the phone and just there'd just be blank space I wouldn't really know what to say hmm. yeah As a matter of fact Sonia and I went through some therapy afterward maybe five eight ten years after the surgery to try and get me to figure out how to initiate conversation with her because i would sit there in silence for like hours at a time and she felt always compelled to have to initiate every conversation every date every every encounter was her initiating and that was driving her crazy and so you know i tried to get better at that i'm still not really very good at it but but i'm better than i was and it's not it's not that you're inhibited it's that you just don't feel that impulse to say anything. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I can I obviously have the capability to say the words. I just really have no idea what to say right. or how to approach things like that. Right. You know, when I was. When I was doing physical therapy, you know, I've got a pattern. I've got, you know, what hurts, how long has it been hurting, what makes it right. better, what makes it worse. And I've got this kind of script that I can follow right. and get down to what's going on with people. So, from a physical therapy standpoint, I was actually pretty good at that. And nobody would even know that I'd ever had a brain injury. Right. But from going to a party and just having to converse, small talk with people, I'll just sit in a corner and yeah. I won't say anything for an entire evening. I mean, I'll sit yeah. there for three or four hours. But you'll be
0: comfortable I'll just be comfortable. Yeah. watching the party. Yeah. yeah no I've done that. Being <laughs> observing. Yeah. I kinda like that so if now if if our roles were reversed and you were interviewing me, would you know how to do it would you
2: if uh, I'd had a script you know and and asked you yeah, tell me about you know anything you want to talk about those sort right, of things right, and then, and general. then kind of go off from there off on any tangent that yeah. sort of appealed to us, I think that'd be fine yeah um, okay. but i mean yeah with with Sonia, i mean for me to to just say. How'd you sleep last night? What were your dreams? You know, um, anything you want to do today? That gets kind of boring after a while. Right. I mean, you know, and she said, I want to hear more about you, what you're interested in, what you're engaged in, what your right. ambitions are, what your dreams are. And I say, You know, I, I don't really have anything. I mean, mm. I'm just, I'm here now. I'm very happy being here now. Um, my desires. I mean, I have some desire to travel over the course of the next few years. I mean, that'd be great. But otherwise, it's, you know, what do you want for breakfast?
0: What is it about travel that that attracts you?
2: Well, um, about a year after maybe well, maybe 18 months after the surgery. Uh, we ended up going to Europe for a while. and We were in France for a while. And I had I had taken French all the way through high school and and was pretty good at French vocabulary-wise. Um, and so I studied up before we went there, and I was actually able to use some of the vocabulary mm. that I had learned in high school. So you still had access to that. I still had access. I mean, mm. I had to read vocabulary textbooks, that sure. sort of things, so in order to access what the right verbiage was. Um, but I was able to go there. And actually, that sort of stimulated my, my brain as well. The idea of using a different music, their different language right. was actually fairly stimulating to me as well. Right. And I enjoy being in different cultures, talking to different people or just observing different people right. in, in their lives and seeing what's important to them and yeah. how they live and how they eat and what they eat and what they do with their days. I mean yeah. it's just it's it's exciting to me. It's very interesting to me.
0: Do you ever worry that your your former personality might come
2: back? I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I'm sure there's some aspects of my personality that have that have um, transferred or or uh, returned, um, but I don't really think about it because yeah. I don't really recognize what's in the past and what's now. Right. I mean, I really right. have I have no idea how to recognize what I used to be like. Yeah. When you met your
0: brother and sister, w- did you recognize them, or was I it I did recognize re- them. No, uh, but I'd
2: had pictures of them and videos oh, of them right. before You'd I ever sort saw of them. <laughs> yeah, and um, and they they realized that I was different. I was definitely quieter, and maybe more thoughtful. I would call it withdrawn, but they would mm-hmm. call it thoughtful because I wasn't being as aggressive as I used to be, or as assertive right. as I used to be. Um, But um, I think I have a pretty good relationship with them now. I mean, my sister, I only see her once every couple of years because she's still Mm. north of Toronto. Mm. Um, My brother lives in Atlanta. He married an American as well. Um, But he comes up skiing pretty much every year. He's coming up in February Mm. for a week with his kids. Come on, you have relatives in Banff? Yeah. you (laughs) got—you
0: got to take advantage of that. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, What... I wonder. I imagine myself in your position. It, as hard as that is, it's yeah. I have no idea. But I imagine, like when you meet your brother and sister, and you know they're your brother and sister, and but it's as for you, it's as if you've never met them before. And yet, you, I, do you love them because you know that you grew up with them in this abstract sort of way? I would say
2: yes. I yeah. would say yeah. I love them sort of regardless. Um, right. It's interesting it, it was actually worth seeing old friends because I lost a lot of old friends um, immediately after the surgery just because I couldn't talk to them and when I did talk to them I was I was kind of bothering, dull and lifeless that sort of mm. thing and so um, I definitely lost some friends um, but seeing them and being able to talk a little bit about history with them and my mom died, unfortunately. she died in a hit and run the first year Sonya and I were married after we'd been married oh. about six months. Um, and uh, she never met any of our kids or never knew All that right. we were pregnant or anything like that. And so they'll talk about you know my mom, and they'll have little glimpses of memories of, of things that you know she used to be like. I know she was a, she was a strong woman. she was like 5'10", mm. 150, 160 pounds, you know, pretty solidly built, um, and uh, in bleached the motor, blonde huh? yeah. And the uh, music and we used to actually play tennis together, uh-huh. which I'd, I'd forgotten until somebody mentioned that to me and uh, we actually won a couple of mixed doubles tournaments in the in the Collingwood area, huh. which was great and just having some sense of what she was like and hearing stories about them um, is pretty yeah. amazing. It must have been
0: I, I'm trying to imagine what it was like for you where you're you know, you're having one of these meetings with someone that you know is an old friend and you see in their eyes that they're searching for someone in your eyes. Yes. I mean, and and you're like, look, this is all there is now. This is me. Yep. I know you're looking for him, but he's not in here anymore. And that must have been strange. Like, did you feel compassion for them? Like a sa-
2: Like they've lost someone? Hmm. You know I wouldn't what I mean? say I felt compassion but I wouldn't say I felt defensive either I would say I was just sort of experiencing them as they are now right. and hoping they were experiencing me as I was now right. uh, as I am now and actually it was interesting because when I went back to Collingwood uh, I actually went to um, see some of my old high school buddies a couple of my best friends from high school and we sat there on the shores of Lake Huron having a lunch and um My best friend's mother uh, was there and their father had died a little while before that. Um, but I was there with them for lunch and they were telling me all these stories about me kind of showing up because I used to show up at their place in the middle of the night. I'd be at a, at a party or somewhere because I live 20 miles away. I would have to hitchhike home. Oh, right. And then sometimes of the year, you just can't do that yeah. because it'd be snowy it or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so I would just show up and knock on their window and they'd say, Richard, is that you? And they would invite me in and I would sleep on their, on their, one of their bunk beds. And uh, they would tell me stories about that. And you know, I, I would, would be shocked and amazed but then really grateful to have them in my life at that point yeah yeah
0: do you think if you if you met the dude you used to be that the two of you would be friends I
2: have no idea if we were in if we were in similar circumstances still in high school I think Mm. we would probably gravitate together right but now we have such different life experiences right he'd be hard
0: charging and you'd be like chill dude yeah yeah have a beer calm down yeah. I wonder if, if, in a way, what you went through is is sort of like a, how to say this, like, I, I feel like in my own life, I'm 57, I guess you're a little older I'm than me. I'm 61. 61. Yeah. So we're basically yeah. the same age. But I do feel like, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I was a lot more intense, mm-hmm. more sort of ambitious in a way, like I, hungry and, you know, stuff I need to get done and I want to do this and, and, and sort of, um, I don't know, more sort of um, contentious. And as I've gotten older, I'm more like, yeah, whatever, just, you know, chill out, enjoy the moment, sort of sit back and relax. So I wonder if, if what you've experienced is kind of like
2: the same maturation process, but all at once. You know what I, mean? I would say that is probably very true. Um, I grew up in a pretty poor family. Um, my mom was married and divorced four times, had three alcoholic stepfathers. Um, oh, wow. This is all stories that have kind of come around right. as, as a result of talking to my brother and sister. Um, and... Um, for me, having a certain security, having a certain stability, like having one relationship, was really important to me. So mm-hmm. Sonia and I, the fact that we've been married for thirty-six years, thirty-seven years, is you know really important to me. Yeah, um, we've moved around quite a bit, but we have a certain of stability, a stable nucleus, uh, family. Yeah, and um, the fact that I I needed a certain amount of money to in order to live my life comfortably that was very important to me cuz i wasn't going to be poor anymore yeah um i'd grown up you know having maybe peanut butter for dinner maybe some fried bologna that sort of things you right. know and and um and just was not willing to do that anymore and so there was definitely a drive for me yeah and now i mean i'm you know I, I don't want to say that I'm ready to die, but, but, you know, I've done a lot of things with my life and if I was taken out tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, I would feel quite content with, you know, what I've done with my life. Yeah. And so I, your lives, yeah, my lives. That's very (laughs) true. And uh, actually Sonia and I mentioned that we say we've had like four different relationships over the time, you know, because of, some of the things that she's been through and some of the things sure. that I've been through. Yeah.
0: Well, that that's I was just talking with someone about that yesterday. We were talking about long term relationships and and, uh, you know, we agreed that that nobody has a long relationship. You have a series of shorter relationships and they might all be with the same person in quotes. Right people change so much over the years I'd say i that's
2: exactly correct yeah. because I mean she was a teenager when we met we were right. both teenagers we were both still in high school mm. and I was in my last year grade 13 in Ontario uh, and she was in like 12th grade or something like that and so um we were there for another year in high school and then we went to different universities, which was a different type of relationship. Then we got married and then yeah. I went to grad school and then pharmaceutical and then we had a child and then we had another child and then right. we moved to Banff from Ontario, from Toronto and that's a different relationship and sure. it, was, it was kind of bizarre how many relationships
0: and women through. go through menopause which is a big change yes. you know some people have described that as a second adolescence you yeah. know um yeah personalities can change our mm-hmm. bodies change our, our
2: sexuality changes and, everything and the brain injury that was a massive change sure. for, for us you know so that was a whole different sort of awakening for both of us because yeah. as as i became let's say increasingly debilitated She came into her power, and Mm. that was really interesting power dynamic that really changed for us. Right. Although for you, you weren't aware of the way it had been before. That's very true. Yeah. And so for me, it was just normal. Right. She was just. I mean, for her, it was a big change, but for me, I was just accepting the fact that this was the way our relationship was. Yeah.
0: yeah. Was it hard for you, or, or did you ever think about the fact that? you had to trust her so much because she was basically reintroducing you to the world. And she had to make certain decisions there, right? Like maybe, I mean, I don't know anything. It's been a long time since I read the book, so I don't really remember the details. But, you know, there could have been um, events, for example, in your past, uh, a difficult moment in your relationship, and she could decide not to tell you about that, right? Yes,
2: and, and...
0: or, to tell you about
2: it in from her perspective, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you really fucked up five years ago, you know and it's interesting because reading the book, um, I came to grips with some of the some of the behaviors that she had not really kind of come, I don't want to say come clean with me, but really emphasized uh, uh, in our right. relationship. And so we had to sit down and talk about this. And I said, is this really the what happened? And mm. she said, yes, you know, from my perspective, this is really what happened. And she's trying to be as objective as she can be. Yeah. Of course, she has a subjective bias because right. she is who she is and sure. she has her own point of view. Um, but uh, I did trust her. I mean, I trust her 100 yeah. percent and and never really, never really questioned or had an issue um, and I would say that most people that knew us then would say that she tried to be as objective as possible. I mean, yeah. some people might have some differences of opinion in terms of some of the things that might happen, but I would say overall, um, I would say she was pretty pretty yeah. good. Well, it's such an
0: amazing situation to be in for her. Yeah, know?
2: yeah, because she has to... She, well, there's she, no preparation for no, that. No, and she has a tremendous amount of power now yeah. you know, to really... Um, reintroduce me to the world in in whatever image she wants to portray i mean really
0: yeah yeah i mean she had raised two children so mm-hmm. there's some there's some parallels right yeah. where you're trying to raise a child in the way you think is best but you're also trying to respect their individual viewpoint as it arises and uh their personality you're not you don't want to squelch them and shape them too much right
2: and i was very much like another child yeah. no question about it yeah,
0: yeah. That's wild. Do, do, are there ways that that memory? You mentioned smell earlier, and taste, and music. Are, are there are there some avenues into your past that seem more um, sort of immediate and powerful? Hmm. You know what I mean? Like when you listen to Motown, is it like, oh, oh, that takes me back.
2: Yes, I would say, I mean, the first time I heard Barry White, it was really interesting, (laughs) because my mom (laughs) used to listen to Barry White. (laughs) Ooh, Uh, baby, uh, baby. Yep, two, three o'clock in the morning when she was breaking up with another relationship (laughs) and we were moving from like one area to back to my grandmother's house or something like that, I remember Barry White playing on the stereo. And the first time I heard Barry White, I got this image of laying in bed, and hearing my mom outside, you know, whether she'd be crying or just talking to somebody or somebody like that, and Barry White playing in the background, and that was kind of that yeah. was kind of amazing. So I would say music is definitely.
0: So when you had that particular me- memory of your mom going through distress and and the association with Barry White, did you feel sadness or was it just a sort of a neutral observation?
2: Hard for me to say. I mean. I would say maybe a little bit of sadness, but I was still kind of disconnected from the actual event. Right. And so I would say I felt something. I felt something for her. Um, but not having had her in my life for so long, um, it was really difficult for me to really feel connected to that moment or yeah. that, that environment.
0: Yeah. What about sexuality? Did when Were you... I mean, I know Sonia wrote about this in the book. Yeah. So if if it makes you uncomfortable, we don't need no. to talk about it. But because it's you know, I mean, all of this is personal, but that's even more personal. And did you have memories of sex? Did you? Because you know, you're you have the body of a man, right. but your your mind is sort of emerging from something similar to death or mm-hmm. birth, yeah. right? Some a nothingness, and right. you're emerging into the light how how did you relate with sexuality
2: i would say i had very very little memory of sex mm-hmm. i mean sex was very new to me and so the whole process of becoming sexual again uh was kind of amazing to me i mean <laughs> <I'll bet. laughs> and, lucky and, you yeah. and um
0: yeah and but here you have this adult beautiful woman mm-hmm. who's i mean not many 12 year olds get that you know that's very true (laughs) um
2: yeah for me it was all new it was all relatively new but i mean it took a while because i had no real idea what to do sexually again you know how to use my hands how to use my mouth how to take time right um oh i'll bet yeah that was yeah that was a big issue for us initially. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, if you're a 12-year-old boy, yeah, you know. That's right. Yeah, that's. yeah. So were your physiological responses like that, too? Like you were as
2: excitable? Yes. Uh, yeah. I was very premature in the, early, be, in the early stages for yeah. at least the first year or something like that. until. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy.
0: That's so interesting. You know, because I, I would have assumed that that was a physiological thing. You know hypersensitivity just like on a nerve ending level right not i think a lot brain. of it i
2: think a lot of it is mental right yeah
0: so it's so new mm-hmm. and so exciting mm-hmm. that it it sort of amplifies the nerve impulses and all that
2: yes that's fascinating that's really interesting what about dreams do you remember your dreams very rarely i mean mm-hmm. i mean it was interesting because we're in london um I'm pretty sure this was after the surgery. Um, We were in London um, when Dylan was in... Hmm, I'm not sure if it was after surgery or not. but we were in London, and I had this really powerful dream because my mom was actually born there. And actually, we went there this past year mm. and went to Croydon, which is just outside of London, and actually picked up a copy of her birth certificate, which was great. Uh, I love that. But I did have some dreams when we were in London that seemed to reconnect me to my family. I don't know if it was you know, real or not, mm. but I had some more powerful images then. But as a rule, I don't really remember many of my dreams. Mm. You know, I might, if I have a really strong one... Um, like earlier this week, I actually had a dream of riding a bike down a slope like Haleakala, that sort of thing. And uh, this guy in front of me started to go and crash. And I was worried that I was going to crash. And I sort of woke up right before, you know, I kind of came to where he was. Mm. And that was kind of a powerful dream. And um, But rarely do I remember my dreams.
0: Mm. You know, when you were talking earlier about being um, like your sort of consciousness being responsive that you're happy just sitting in the corner and if someone comes and asks you a question you'll answer but you don't feel a need to go out and um, start conversations or whatever. It it made me think of um, this guy John Lilly who was a psychologist in the 60s. He studied dolphins and communication with dolphins and got into all this really interesting stuff. But he... He invented what is now called a sensory deprivation tank Mm, or float tank. Yeah. Um, And the reason he invented it was he wanted to try to understand whether consciousness is something that emerges from the brain spontaneously or if it's something that only emerges in reaction to stimuli. So, in other words, if... You know, we're sitting, you and I are sitting here right now that we hear the leaf blower, there's wind, there's light, there's movement, all this stuff. So we're aware of all this and all that awareness put together is consciousness. Mm -hmm. Or if we were sitting here in a totally dark, totally silent room, would we still be conscious? And for how long? Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you feel, is your
2: consciousness... You know what I mean? Does it exist without things coming at you? I think it does. I mean, I think I'm constantly kind of processing thoughts in my brain and images in my brain, um, regardless of whether there's stimuli or not. I mean, it's the Mm. idea of if there's a tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it happen? And, you know, for me, it's it's a yes. I mean, um, just the fact that there's nobody there to perceive it doesn't necessarily mean the sound doesn't exist. And for me... The fact that I might not have a conversation with somebody or not have any input doesn't necessarily mean the mind mind isn't spontaneously producing thought. And, yeah. and it, it's interesting because when I died, I mean, supposedly I died, um, there was no white light, there was no tunnel, there was nothing. I mean, I really had no consciousness that I was dead at all, no sort of passage through time or passage through space or passage mm. anywhere. Or at least and not that you remember. Not that I remember, not yeah. that I remember and yeah. t- until waking up, you know, two weeks later. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know whether that fits into the scenario or not, but but um, for me, the idea uh, that that you need to have some sort of input, external input, to have consciousness um, doesn't resonate with me, I mean, I have yeah. no idea if I'm right or not
0: sure but, who does, yeah. but so I you know we talked about meditation earlier, and you know in in the meditation that I've studied, there's this concept that that there's a part of us that is separate from the personality, the being, so there's some there's someone uh or something observing me living my life mm-hmm. and I can associate myself with me living my life or I can associate myself with that consciousness that's watching me live my life right, right? do you feel and again there's no way to know this mm-hmm. of course but your, your experience do you feel that there's some aspect of you that is common to those two parts of your life in other words, something that was
2: watching you then that is still watching you now? Who knows, but I think yes. I think that there is, there is some... For me, it's a matter of energy can either be created nor destroyed. Mm. And so I think when we die, there's some sort of energy that continues on in the universe, regardless of whether our life is... Whether we're alive or not. And for me, that, that energy that I used to have is still the energy that I have now I might be in a different form I might be in a different being but there's still some energy that is continuous through the through the two people do you ever think of yourself as being a reincarnation? hmm no but it's an interesting thought I mean yeah. because I am quite a bit different than, than I used to be and, and if
0: there's some continuity yeah whatever that continuity is has been you know is riding a different horse now yes. or whatever
2: yeah that's an interesting thought, and I haven't thought of that, but but it's an interesting thought. It's huh. something I'll have to think about later. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: having had this experience, you've mentioned uh, several times that you're um, you're very much focused on the present and content, and you don't experience a lot of anxiety or
2: very rarely. Yeah. I mean, very very rarely.
0: Yeah. Um, do you feel that you're? More or less liberated from concerns about mortality, having been through yes, what you're through? I,
2: I definitely do. Um, I've I've thought about that, and I thought you know if I were to die today, tomorrow, next week, I'd be very sad for my for Sonya and for my relatives. But personally, uh, having having been there and done that, I mean, it doesn't really scare me. It yeah. does not really scare me at all.
0: What about the deaths of other people?
2: You know, I'm sad because my relationship with them is is interrupted or affected, um, and sad for any pain they might go through during the death process. But I'm pretty accepting of death. I mm. mean, for me, if somebody has lived a, a good life and and died in a in a reasonable way, yeah. um, then then I'm I'm content with that.
0: Is it that y- you you feel some certainty or trust that they're? That there's a continuity for them as well, in the sense that energy isn't created. You know what I mean? There's yeah. continuity for you. Mm-hmm. At least there has been. Yes. Do you think your next death
2: will also have some continuity? I'm hopeful. You know, I can't say with any sort of assurance because whether, you know, obviously I didn't exactly die. I didn't, you know, I didn't stop everything because I wouldn't be here if I did. Um so I'm not 100% certain that it's, that it's applicable, um, but I, I do. I think there's some sort of energy is neither created nor destroyed, and so I think there's some energy that continues on after our death. And yeah. whether it's just people's memories of, of other people or images that they have or something like that, uh, or whether, whether our energies are passed on onto our kids or whatever, uh, I have no idea how that energy takes form, but I believe that there's an energy that continues.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the, the, I think metaphorically about things like this because uh, obviously none of us have facts right. the image that I always think of is a, a life is like a raindrop uh, that at the end it hits the ocean so the raindrop it doesn't exist anymore but the water does mm-hmm. the water never stops existing yeah, and it
2: might be evaporated later on and right. head back in and it might be a slightly different kind of raindrop and it that mixes might be, with yep, other and
0: yep. yeah but and the I, essence I, is there somewhere I agree right? with that and yeah. I think
2: that is a uh, I I agree with that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Is there anything that uh, we haven't discussed that stands out for you?
2: Not that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, man. This has been great. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a beautiful story. I'm I'm happy you came back for another round. (laughs) Me too.
2: I'm (laughs) definitely happy to be (laughs) here. Or whoever, whoever that was, and this is, is. yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. It's great. It's. It's strange. I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I envy uh, Sonia, the experience of having known both of you, but I imagine it. it it's. I mean, it, sh- who can she talk to? You know, no one's had that experience, right? Probably in the whole world except mm-hmm. her. You know, it's. That's fascinating. All right. Well, thank you, Richard. This thank is you.
2: It was my pleasure.
1: For the wind, also oh, younger than the sun. Yeah, the bonnie boat was one as we sail into the mystic. Oh, I can now hear the sailors cry, smell the sea and Feel the sky Let your soul and spirit Fly into the misty And where that foghorn blows I will be coming home mm-hmm. Yeah, when the foghorn blows I want to hear it, I don't have the fear, and I want to rock your gypsy so. just like way back in the days of old, and magnificently we will fold into the best thing. When that foghorn blows You know I will be coming home Yeah when that foghorn whistle blows I gotta hear it food and to the misty.